Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. Next slide. This is my mom. Is it art? It's a snapshot. If I told you Ansel Adams had taken it, would that make a difference? Art isn't art until someone says it is. It's art! <laughs> the right people. The world of art, I have suggested, is full of fakes. Fake originality, fake emotion, and the fake expertise of the critics. These are all around us, and in such abundance that we hardly know where to look for the real thing. Or perhaps there is no real thing. Perhaps the world of art is just one vast pretense, in which we all take part, since, after all, there is no real cost to it. Perhaps anything is art if someone says that it is. It's all a matter of taste, they say. But is there nothing to be said in reply? Do we have no way of distinguishing true from false art, or saying why art matters and how? Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. On this podcast, we explore everything from theology to aesthetics to literature to uh, really good movies to animals to anything basically that inspires a sense of wonder, awe, and gratitude in the world. So uh, I let uh, philosopher Roger Scruton and the movie Mona Lisa Smile introduce today's topic, which is what is art and why does it matter? And this is a really central question for me. It's actually the question that sort of got me writing and blogging and podcasting on this uh, topic that of uh, literature and arts and theology is because I had this central idea in my head of there has to be a way of defining art as either good or bad. And as I was trying to do that, I found it much more difficult than I initially thought it would be. Um, I, I sort of had an instinct and an intuition that of what made certain art good or bad. And of course, uh, there are plenty of people who would disagree with my assessments. Um, if I went into a modern art museum and I saw a circle on the wall and then I compared it to the Mona Lisa, I would say that one of those pieces of art is good and one of them is bad. I thought there had to be a way to differentiate between um, Rodin's The Thinker or uh, The Ecstasy of St. Teresa and uh, Marcel Duchamp's Urinal. There had to be a way to say that one of these is art, one of these is not, one of these is good, one of these is bad. Um, but the question is much more complicated than we would initially think because there is no, um, and perhaps correctly so, no uh, set 
guidance about what makes art good or bad. I mean, uh, Vincent van Gogh was completely unappreciated in his lifetime. Um, they were confused by his art. They didn't find it beautiful at all. And now most of us, um, and certainly the uh, critical academy, the, the, the people who matter, who say what is art and what isn't, have uh, defined um, Vincent van Gogh as one of the greatest artists to ever live. So how do we know? How do I know that something that I'm looking at is beautiful or not? How do I know if it's good art or not? And this is a very complicated question. Uh, and it's one that philosopher Roger Scruton attempts to answer. If you aren't familiar with him, he was a English uh, philosopher uh, and also sort of a conservative commentator and writer in England. He died very recently in the past few years. He uh, interests me mostly because of his, uh, his writings on aesthetics. He also wrote a great little book about how he came to horseback riding later in life and fox hunting later in life and about the aesthetics and traditions of, uh, of that very sort of bizarre pastime that I share with him. And uh, that little book is called On Hunting, if you ever want to read that. But that's a bit of an aside. Um, <laughs> I'm going to use a few clips from him from um, various lectures that are available on YouTube, which are very good and worth watching. And um, you can disagree with him, of course, but he, he lays out sort of how, um, how we can define art. What is the difference between kitsch and true art? Why is beauty important? Uh, why have we as a society um, been afraid to engage with beautiful art, uh, essentially? How can an artist be an original in, in the 21st century? Uh, can they be an original? And is, that, and is this anxiety over originality uh, part of the problem here? Um, is that why we have more interesting ideas than actual art? So that's a question we'll be looking at. I'm also going to bring in a bit, few of the ideas of uh, Paul Tillich, who was a a uh, theologian, a Lutheran theologian um, it, from the mid 20th century who wrote a great book called The Dynamics of Faith. And in that book, he really defines uh, the difference between a sign and a symbol. And uh, he defined this concept of ultimate concern. And although he wasn't um, particularly talking about art, I think this idea can really guide us um, when we're looking at art about whether it points beyond itself or it simply uh, dies when we look at it. If, it. if it leads us nowhere except to what is in front of us, I think that the art has essentially failed. Um, this is also something that the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber um, discussed about um, when he has this concept of I and thou of, of recognizing we can only recognize ourselves when we recognize another, and art uh, is a form of recognition, uh, first and foremost. But today's art is often most interested in alienation, and what does that mean, and, and does that have a role? Is, is there a role for alienation in art? So I can't promise you uh, answers to all these questions, but I can promise you um, questions upon questions upon questions that will hopefully um, be thought provoking. And, um, you know, you're welcome to email me and give me your thoughts because I'm, I'm genuinely very interested in, uh, in, in how people define art, if they think we should be defining art, or if it simply is a matter of taste about whether or not I like something, is that enough? Um, there's a G.K. Chesterton quote, something along the lines of, uh, you know, the, the good art and and a good life um, consist consist in uh, in one thing, which is drawing the line somewhere. So I I tend to agree with this. I tend to agree with um, 
Roger Scruton's sort of platonic ideal of there has to be a concept of beauty, a concept of art that we are striving toward that sort of exists outside of a world of things and opinions and time uh, that, that will reflect what is true art, what is bad art. So um, we'll definitely be discussing that. And the movie clip you heard was from the movie Mona Lisa Smile. It's kind of a subpar movie, honestly. <laughs> But I, for some reason, have a soft spot for it. I really enjoy it. Um, Julia Roberts plays this art teacher. She's sort of a little more avant-garde and shows up at Wellesley, very traditional place. Um, Maggie Gyllenhaal is in it, Kirsten Dunst, and uh, she sort of shakes things up in the art department and starts asking questions and engaging with these women about um, definitions, basically, definitions of what it means to be a woman, a student, a wife, and also the definitions of art funny story is that when my husband and I were first dating I really wanted to watch this movie and he sort of looked at the DVD very skeptically and I think I told him that it like won an Oscar or something like that I said it was award-winning and uh, it definitely was not but that got him to watch the movie he was like okay I just I've never heard of it I didn't know that it was so acclaimed so I got him to watch that movie <laughs> um, but we've watched it since and we both enjoy it um, so, uh, and sorry if you hear some wind in the background. It's a windy, blustery day. It's the first day of March as I'm recording this. This is going to release tomorrow on the second day of March. So in like a lion, hopefully out like a lamb. So we'll see. But anyway, without further ado, let's get going on today's topic, which is what is art? Why does it matter? Beauty is a discredited idea. It denotes the saccharine sylvan scenes and cheesy melodies that appealed to Granny. The modernist message that art must show life as it is suggests to many people that if you aim for beauty, you will end up with kitsch. This is a mistake, however. Kitsch tells you how nice you are. It offers easy feelings on the cheap. Beauty tells you to stop thinking about yourself and to wake up to the world of others. It says, look at this, listen to this, study this, for here is something more important than you. Kitsch is a means to cheap emotion. Beauty is an end in itself. We reach beauty through setting our interests aside and letting the world dawn on us. There are many ways of doing this, but art is undeniably the most important, since it presents us with the image of human life, our own life and all that life means to us, and asks us to look on it directly, not for what we can take from it, but for what we can give to it. Through beauty, art cleans the world of our self-obsession. So some more great observations from Roger Scruton there, who just has a way of uh, distilling this topic really well, I think, uh, for our discussion. So I think that um, it's kind of hard actually to find a coherent definition of kitsch, but if you think of sort of overly sentimental things, cliched things, um, this is what we're talking about. Uh, and I think that there is a serious fear, as Roger Scruton uh, alluded to and mentioned, that, uh, that, that engaging in the beautiful will have you falling very easily into kitsch. Uh, and so we instead have this turn to a sort of obsession with an originality, a sort of obsession with an inward-facing ideal because uh, we are afraid to engage with uh, beautiful things, capital B. Uh, first of all, we don't really know as a society whether or not they exist, and we also don't know how to, in 
insert and uh, create originality within that context. And what he also says here at the end, which is uh, that truly beautiful art creates an encounter that asks something of you. It pushes you to engage with the world outside of yourself. It is not uh, simply a self-reflective exercise. It's not simply an interesting idea, which is something I found very interesting and helpful as a definition. Uh, Roger Scruton talks about the difference between a lot of, um, I guess what he would end up saying is bad art and good art, is that a lot of bad art is nothing more than an interesting idea. Um, and I think that we can all say that we've had this experience. I mean, I, I, I'm not shunning modern art in any way. There's mu much of modern art that I really appreciate, that I like, and some of which I think is actually great art. But, um, you know, I've, I've, one of my favorite museums was the Tate Modern in London. But I do have to say that uh, my experience there, many of um, the, the pieces, the art that I encountered, I would put more in the category of interesting idea than in great art. And a lot of times that's all we're presenting. We're saying, here's, here's something thought provoking, here's a commentary, maybe something ironic, but I wouldn't put that in the same category as beautiful, great, um, eternal art, especially if we believe in art. Uh, with a capital A and beautiful with a capital B, that these sort of platonic ideals exist. Um, not every interesting idea that we put into a museum is going to, to, um, to be up to that standard. It doesn't mean that they aren't worthwhile. It doesn't mean it's not worth engaging with them or um, talking about them or that we can't have an emotional experience from the idea that it provokes, but it is not beautiful art. And I think that's a very helpful way to look at things. The way he described um, beauty and its impact on us also um, brings us again, as I talked about uh, sort of in my introduction to this episode, uh, to the philosopher, the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber. And he wrote a, an amazing book called I and Thou. So um, he's talking about this relationship between mankind and God, and he defined it as an I and Thou encounter. It's the moment when someone sees the reality of the universe and enters into relationship with its creator. And he uh, describes how an infant experiences a distinct psychological leap when he can differentiate himself from his mother. Um, he can now appreciate himself as a self and his mother as an other, and they are now free to love each other in a real relationship. And what's so thought-provoking about this idea is that we really can't have a self until we've recognized um, our capacity as relational beings. And of course, in Martin Buber's philosophy, that ultimate relationship is with God. But even a small little baby who finally realizes that they are something separate from their mother, they're not just an extension of her, and she also is a separate entity that is independent of him, that that is, is, is the only time when he finally realizes who he is as an individual, as something separate, as something unique. And in I and Thou, um, Buber describes how we encounter art. He asks, what happens to a painting when no one is looking at it? Sort of the same question of, you know, does a tree falling make a sound if no one is there to hear it? Uh, and he, he comes to the conclusion that it exists, of course, but it, quote, sleeps. And it is the viewer that creates the encounter. So um, art is not... Um, simply self-facing. It is always, it always requires an audience, in other words, at least to fulfill its, uh, its true uh, potential as a work of art. 
But what happens to art that no longer wants to encounter the viewer? What happens when art is no longer interested in encounter, but in alienation? And I think that um, in postmodern art and in uh, sort of a lot of contemporary art that we see today, we see actually very little interest in encountering the viewer or creating a relationship with the viewer. Uh, we see a, actually um, host hostility um, a lot of times or, um, or, or again, yeah, alienation, alienation, alienating the viewer, confusing them, upsetting them. Um, uh, traditionally, art was seen as a portal to the divine, the way that we could lift the veil between this world and the next. Um, again, thinking of Bernini's The Ecstasy of St. Teresa. I was so lucky to stumble upon that just randomly when I was in Rome. Um, I love St. Teresa of Avila. It was just such a, such a gift to find that. Um, and, uh, you know, when we look at this amazing sculpture, um, we look at Mike, Michelangelo's Pieta or the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, and I realize I'm, I'm bringing up very classical examples uh, on purpose because we've sort of all agreed that these things are beautiful. Um, there are many other examples we could use, but um, if you think of your reaction to these things and then you think of the feeling you get, if you look up um, Yoko Ono's, not to bash Yoko, <laughs> Although we all have fun doing that. Um, Yoko Ono's To the Light, which is essentially um, just three differently colored piles of dirt on the ground. Do you have the same reaction? Um, and beyond, I mean, maybe you do. I don't know. That's what, sort of what I'm asking. But I sort of intuitively think that you don't. And uh, we have to ask, is it the same experience? Are, are they categorized the same way? But Yoko Ono's Piles of Dirt, um, this piece, To the Light, um, were displayed in an art museum in London. And because they were in this museum and not in your backyard, many people see this as art. It also helps that Yoko Ono has identified as an artist and many people have supported this identification, which lends credence to these dirt piles. So again, it's sort of that question that was posed by, uh, by the movie Mona Lisa Smile. Uh, art isn't art until somebody says it is. And then you say, well, it's art. And you say it has to be the right people. So Yoko Ono has been embraced by at least enough right people that her piles of dirt on the ground are different than your toddler's piles of dirt on the ground. Of course, we also have to look at intention. I mean, Yoko Ono was trying to make a point. Again, an interesting idea. I'm sure she had a thought process here. She wanted the viewer to um, experience something or have a certain idea um, when they encountered these dirt piles. Um, was it the same that Bernini was thinking when he created the Ecstasy of St. Teresa? I don't know, um, but these are questions that are all in the background of what makes art beautiful or ugly or alienating or um, or whether or not it poses a, a potential for a relationship, a relationship between the viewer and the artist, the viewer and the work of art, and ultimately the viewer and this grander platonic eternal uh, concept of beauty, which we equate with God. So here, I think, is the best place to introduce the ideas of um, philosopher, theologian Paul Tillich, author of Dynamics of Faith, among many other works. Uh, but that's where I encountered his ideas in a modern religious thought class in college, and they really stayed with me um, because he has this notion of ultimate concern 
that basically every single human being's life is shaped by their ultimate concern. What is the ultimate concern of their life? And that the symbols we use uh, to, to, to portray man's ultimate concern matter deeply and that there's a big difference between a sign and a symbol. A quote from him here, man's ultimate concern must be expressed symbolically because symbolic language alone is able to express the ultimate. So this goes back um, to our original idea of what is art, why is it important, and it's, art is important because it may be the only means um, by which we can truly express ultimate concern. It may be the only means by which we can express um, the eternal in the everyday, that we can access uh, beautiful things, that we, can, um, that we can have an encounter with something transcendent. So just to sort of bring it down to um, a, a concrete example, uh, Tillich would say, you know, there is a, uh, if you look at a stop sign, okay, that has, um, that's going to indicate something to you. You see the stop sign, you know that it indicates to stop. A red light says to stop. We've, we've, we've created a sign there. We've created um, a connection, but that connection is relatively brief. Um, it doesn't go beyond itself. It simply says, uh, stop. That's all. That's all we've asked it to say. Whereas symbols, um, symbols can can be pointing beyond themselves. That they are not just a static, uh, clear-cut um, action required of you, or they are not simply a mark on the wall that means nothing. They they are pointing to something else. So he would say, you know, he was a Christian, a Lutheran, a pastor himself. So he used, of course, he his his idea of the perfect symbol was the cross because it points to the sacrifice of the incarnational God, which is the truth of the universe. So that's an example of a symbol that points beyond itself. It's a symbol that portrays man's ultimate concern. And I think that this idea of ultimate concern, of whether something points beyond itself or is simply in a sort of um, en endless feedback loop, you know, stop sign, stop, stop sign, stop, um, that, that is uh, really helpful when analyzing art as well. Because a great work of art um, will portray ultimate concern. It will inspire, as Roger Scruton said, um, for you to look outside of yourself, to say, stop, look at this, engage with this. There's something outside of you. There's something more important than you. Um, there's something bigger than you. Uh, it will point beyond the art in front of you. It will point beyond the viewer to something greater. Now, a work of art that is simply an idea or um, or is basically a failure of art, a bad work of art, will be, um, will, will not bring the viewer to that point of ultimate concern, but rather um, just be a feedback loop of, of uh, encountering a, a visual stimulation, and then that's it. So I, I, I found this idea of ultimate concern very helpful, um, and I'm going to now quote, um, I'm going to take you through a little bit of um, the letter of um, St. John Paul II, former Pope. He wrote a beautiful letter to artists. Uh, you can look it up online. I will put all these, all these notes, all these ideas in the show notes um, so you can always use that as a resource. But this is just a beautiful letter. Um, Pope John Paul II was an artist himself. He was, a, he was a thespian, an actor, a playwright, a poet, and he had a great appreciation for the arts, um, for, for music and 
visual arts and literature. Um, he definitely had an artistic spirit. So he um, wrote this very encouraging letter to artists, um, sort of emphasizing how much the world needs art, how much the church needs art. And I think it's just, um, it's, it's, it's a beautiful letter. And it articulates a lot of these ideas if you're familiar with the work of the Inklings, the literary Oxford group that includes C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien especially wrote about and um, believed in this idea that um, mankind uh, was, was made in the image and likeness of God, specifically in his ability to create art. Um, that, that like God, um, man had an urge to create beautiful things, <laughs> to create ex nihilo out of nothing. But of course, man is always um, creating from the existing world, whereas God was creating literally out of nothing, created out of the cosmos. That would be what Tolkien would say. So he, um, this idea is carried through in um, John Paul II's letter that, um, that, that man is a craftsman, that he, his, his vocation, whether or not he is an artist in the way we understand it, every person is an artist in their need to craft their own life and to make of it something beautiful. So he writes here, what is the difference between creator and craftsman? The one who creates bestows being itself. He brings something out of nothing. And this in the strict sense is a mode of operation which belongs to the almighty alone. The craftsman, by contrast, uses something that already exists to which he gives form and meaning. I should also, um, I just want to quote the, the beginning of this, this letter, which is just so, so beautiful. Um, he writes, None can sense more deeply than you artists, ingenious creators of beauty that you are, something of the pathos with which God at the dawn of creation looked upon the work of his hands. And again, um, this is reflecting what Roger Scruton said about beautiful art, how it takes, it be takes us beyond ourselves. Um, Pope John Paul II writes, That is why artists, the more conscious they are of their gift, are led all the more to see themselves in the whole of creation with eyes able to contemplate and give thanks, and to raise to God a hymn of praise. This is the only way for them to come to a full understanding of themselves, their vocation, and their mission. This uh, reminds me of an E.E. E. Cummings poem called, I Thank You, God, for Most This Amazing. And I'll, it's a short poem, so I'll just read it. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and a blue true dream of sky, and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I who have died am alive again today, and this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life, and of love, and of wings, and of the gay, great happening, illimitably earth. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing, any, lifted from the know of all nothing, human, merely being, doubt unimaginable you? Now the ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are opened. I just think of that poem whenever I think of just sort of the artist's um, innate and natural gratitude um, toward God and the universe and being and creation and existence when we are creating art um, with a sense of engagement and a sense of awe and also a sense that what we are creating is not simply coming from ourselves but that we are forming um, something beautiful out of what exists 
And that's a sort of a vocational idea that I think has been lost in a lot of modern art and which might explain some of the alienation we feel because if there's no sense of humility or gratitude, um, no sense of that beauty that points beyond to the ultimate concern to Paul Tillich's idea, uh, we are just going to be again in that self-reflective loop which is all ego and which is all individual. It's not a connective idea of art. And meditating on this idea of beauty and its importance, um, John Paul II writes, the link between good and beautiful stirs fruitful reflection. In a certain sense, beauty is the visible form of the good, just as the good is the metaphysical condition of beauty. That's a really interesting idea, that, that beauty makes manifest what is me metaphysical. That, uh, you know, this idea of the true, the good, and the beautiful um, are all related, and that we can encounter goodness or be inspired to goodness by beauty. And I think we do have to ask what the reaction to art means. And does it matter? Does it matter if we have a sense of disgust looking at art or we feel upset by a work of art? If, and many times that's the intention, that's the intention of the artist is to upset you. And sometimes it's in the service of a greater goal of, of, of exposing some injustice or some sort of horror of history. And that certainly um, can be important and even beautiful in a way. But I think that the, um, we do have to ask these questions of what is art inspiring in us? And do we have art today that inspires us toward the good? Uh, I don't know if we do. Um, I know there are artists making amazing things today um, that do inspire, but I think as a society, we have drifted away from this concept of um, art that indicates something beyond the self. And I, I could go on quoting from this letter. Um, when I printed it out, it's about 13 pages, so I do it, it's short, you know, I mean, you can read it for yourself. But I did want to touch on this one idea that he brings up, which is, um, which was about this idea of the, the iconoclast crisis. Um, in 787, the council held at Nicaea. This is when the church was um, confronted with the idea of whether or not it was legitimate to, um, to, to, to have um, icons, basically, to have sacred art. Uh, you know, um, Catholics get a lot of flack for, <laughs> for having a lot of Virgin Mary statues or something like that. You know, is this legitimate? Are they worshiping statues? This is certainly, is this a golden calf situation? This was a question that was raised. Um, and what they ultimately decreed, and I'm quoting here, was that they decreed the legitimacy of images and their veneration. Uh, the decisive argument to which the bishops appealed in order to settle the controversy was the mystery of the incarnation. If the Son of God had come into the world of visible realities, his humanity building a bridge between the visible and the invisible, then by analogy a representation of the mystery could be used within the logic of signs as a sensory evocation of the mystery. The icon is venerated not for its own sake, but points beyond to the subject which it represents. So this feeds directly into what we were talking about with Tillich, you know, that, that, that a, a truly powerful symbol points beyond the subject which it represents. So that was sort of the conclusion that was come to here was that if you're looking at a beautiful um, sacred art object, if you're looking at a statue of a saint, you aren't worshiping that object, you're worshiping what that object points you toward, what it inspires you toward. I think it was Walker Percy who said that Protestants are, uh, sort of in a, in a um, metaphorical way, he said that Protestants are writers and Catholics are sculptors, and that, um, that, that Protestants are sort of content to have everything in the head, in the world of faith, 
um, you know, by faith alone, whereas, uh, whereas Catholics need the sacraments, they need their hands in the clay, they need, need to touch the visible world. And um, I think that there's a big uh, connection here with art, and um, I don't think it's a mistake that the church has been such a great patron of the arts, um, and, and why, you know, the Vatican is one of the greatest museums in the world, <laughs> is that we believe that, that art matters. We believe that, that beautiful things point beyond themselves to something eternal and sacred and worth protecting and worth, um, worth our patronage and our support. And um, this letter of John Paul II uh, is just a beautiful encouragement to, to you know, religious and non-religious artists alike, just the, uh, confirming the value of the human being as sort of an intuitive artist and creator, and that what they bring to the world is absolutely vital to um, our survival as a species and as a culture. So as I said uh, at the beginning of the episode, I didn't promise you any answers, and I don't know if I really gave any, but um, I hope that that this has been thought-provoking. I'm still thinking through these ideas. I certainly don't have um, a checklist for what makes art good or bad, and I think that that's maybe what I was looking for when I first started thinking about this topic, and I've realized that um, that's never going to be the case, but this sort of this concept of what is art uh, inspiring in us what is it pointing toward and also what is it reflecting about us as a culture as a society about our values and our ideals that these are things that we should be thinking about and that um, and that it's important to not simply accept art because it appears in the right location or is uh, is 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 um, esteemed by the right people but that we we have sort of an obligation to engage with art proactively and and uh, and and have our own opinions about it. So, I hope that um, yeah, I hope that it was thought provoking, and I hope that you will uh, ask big questions about what is art, why does it matter, what makes it good or bad, or something in between. So I wanted to end uh, the episode, as I always do, with a recommendation. So um, as I said, I am recording this episode on March 1st, which means that it is St. David's Day. St. David is the patron saint of Wales. So in uh, in Wales today, uh, traditional festivities would include wearing daffodils and leeks, which are recognized as symbols of Wales and St. David, respectively. They're eating traditional Welsh food, including call, I don't even know what that is, <laughs> and Welsh rarebit. Uh, women are wearing traditional Welsh dresses. It's, it's sort of just a day of celebrating Welsh culture um, all through the life of this uh, saint. Uh, named David, who was alive in the 6th century, and um, he reportedly uh, founded about 12 monasteries. There's a famous St. David's Cathedral in Wales. Uh, He was most famous for combating this heresy, uh, which was basically that um, man was born without original sin and therefore didn't need grace. And uh, his most famous sort of hagiography moment is that he uh, was preaching on this idea and sort of beneath his feet, a hill just started to rise up and a dove landed on his shoulder, sort of indicating the correctness of his ideas. And he was just lifted higher and higher so he could have sort of a a mountain upon which to uh, preach to the masses. 
very interesting saint. Um, Wales is somewhere I have not been in the UK, which makes me very sad. So maybe when traveling is a thing again, um, I will get over to Wales. I know it's supposed to be beautiful, beautiful countryside. Um, very interested in their language and their history and sort of their contentious relationship um, with, uh, with England. Uh, just a lot to explore there. But I wanted to leave you with a lullaby, which is known as the oldest Welsh lullaby and certainly one of the oldest Celtic lullabies that we know. It's called Dinugad's Smock. It seems to be a mother uh, singing this song to her son, to her son Dinagad, about his father going hunting. And I'm going to play you a rendition that is sung by Lynn Denman, who is a, a traditional Welsh singer. And it's just lovely. Um, it's a beautiful tune, and I'm going to link to the YouTube uh, video that has this song, and it also has the, 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 the Old Welsh, New Welsh, and English translation, so you can read through that in the notes on the video. So I hope, uh, I hope that you are inspired to, um, to look at lots of great art, to uh, debate what is great art, what is great music, what is a great painting, um, just be sort of a conscious and active in, uh, observer of, um, of, of the art that you engage with. I have this idea in my head that I'm going to have 10 episodes um, to round out the season, and this is episode 8, but I am about 38 weeks pregnant, and so I don't really know when the baby is coming, but uh, hopefully I will get to 10 episodes, <laughs> but um, I can't make any promises, but I do hope that regardless of whether there's more episodes or not, you will take the time to leave a review, a star rating. Um, some of you uh, in recently have left um, left some a few words, which is so wonderful and um, means a lot to me and a lot to the podcast and getting more more people to listen. So if you and if you are enjoying it, maybe share it with a friend and um, certainly. I, even after the baby's born and until I get my life together and start recording again, um, these podcast episodes will be available and you can share them and um, you can always visit my website, www.bornofwonder.com. You can go to the podcast audio link where you can find all the show notes. You can find my other audio work. You can go to the contact page and email me. I would love to hear from you. Um, but in the meantime, just thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. My name is Katie Marquette, and you've been listening to Born of Wonder. Green Malawad Pan Rice.
And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. 